The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker, I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Nicole Hammer. Nicole is an associate research scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia University. She specializes in the history of conservative media in the United States from the 1940s to the present and the role of right-wing media in American electoral politics. In 2016, she published Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of U.S. Politics, one of the key texts on the topic with the University of Pennsylvania Press. Nicole is also an incredible public communicator. She's a columnist at CNN Opinion, founder of the Made in History section of the Washington Post, and co-host of the podcast Past Present. Finally, Nicole did a six-part podcast on the Unite to Right rally and its historical context called A12. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. So we start with my classics. The first is, what is the first sports team you ever supported? So I came from a family that really liked pro football. And my dad was a 49ers fan. My brother was a Bears fan, so got very used to disappointment. And I was a Miami Dolphins fan for the silliest of reasons. The boy I had a crush on was a Miami (laughs) Dolphins fan. So I was too. And then when I got over the crush, I rightfully took my place as an Indianapolis Colts fan and have been there ever since. Because you're from Indiana, I I grew up in Indiana. Yeah, I actually also lived in Plainfield, Indiana for a while and became a Colts fan, although now I boycott football because of the concussions. Same. (laughs) Moving right along. What is your favorite political song? So I am a big Mavis Staples fan. She was one of the members of the Staple family singers. And she had an album that came out in 2007 called We'll Never Turn Back. And on there, she has a rendition of We Shall Not Be Moved that brings me to tears every time I even think of it. So that's my favorite. And that whole album, though, is absolutely worth listening to on repeat all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. And finally, what is your favorite political book? This is a hard one. I'm going to say a political history book since I'm a historian. I really love Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns. And I think it's because... You know, the Great Migration is one of those huge historical phenomenons. It was one of the biggest internal migrations in human history. And she is able to tell that story through just a handful of families in this really intimate and moving and personal way. So I'm going to put that on the recommendation list. So let's talk about the conservative media in the U.S., I guess most people think about Fox News and maybe by now about Breitbart when they hear the term conservative media. Can you paint a picture of the conservative media today and identify the main organizations and the main fault lines? So Fox News is definitely the one that everyone knows. If you're paying attention to the news these days, you know that it's under attack from a lot of corners that can begin to sketch out this world for you. And in fact, I think Breitbart became more well-known because of its tussles with Fox back in 2016. 
But there are outlets like Newsmax and OAN that are alternative television outlets that show us one of the fault lines. They, believe it or not, are actually more sort of slavishly devoted to Donald Trump than Fox News is. And Trump often uses that wedge in order to kind of beat up on Fox News. But then there's the whole world of conservative talk radio. Mm -hmm. You know, Rush Limbaugh, who's been around for 32 years now, and then all of his imitators are out there. There's sort of a new generation with Ben Shapiro and his podcast slash radio show. And then there's the whole sort of fringier side of conservatism. And there you have everything from Infowars to some alt-right podcasts and, and websites and things like that. So it's a pretty big world. It's a pretty money-making world. It's, it's a very economically viable world, but it also is a world with a lot of fissures and fault lines. Right. And I think one of the things that many people outside of the U.S. and perhaps also on the coast don't fully understand is the continuing importance of talk radio. As we just talked about living in Indiana, right, there are certain areas Actually, as soon as you get out of Indianapolis, pretty much within 15 minutes, you can either have Christian radio or right-wing talk radio. Can you say a little bit more about how big this still is? Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned Christian radio because Christian talk, political Christian talk, is also this huge phenomenon that even flies under the radar of many people who talk about the secular broadcasts like Rush Limbaugh and the rest. You know, when we talk about the nationally syndicated shows are getting 20, 30 million listeners a week and are putting out 15 hours of programming every single week. And then you have these other shows that are local that are very small, right? They're probably getting some thousands of listeners, maybe tens of thousands of listeners, but their listenership is so loyal and it's so central to the political project of conservatism that even those very small shows that you may never have heard of have a huge impact on American politics. Right. And talking about local, one of the other things that we have seen over the last, I would say, one or two decades is the almost occupation of local television in particular, but local media more broadly by conservative media, both Fox and Sinclair. Are they the same? And what is Sinclair? So they are different. So Fox, as people know, is a national cable news network. But Sinclair is actually much closer to Roger Ailes's, uh, one of the founders of Fox News's original ideas for Republican media. It is a syndication company that does local newscast. So they create these packages for the local news that are tilted toward conservatism. So you might be tuning into the same local news that you've been watching for decades and thinking that you're just getting local news, but what you're actually getting is conservative propaganda from Sinclair. And this has its counterpart on the print side in that local print newspapers are being bought up by conservative conglomerates, stuff full of conservative propaganda. And people are consuming them, not always really even knowing that they're consuming conservative propaganda because it's under the cover of the very familiar, very trusted local news imprints. Right. And as Goebbels already said, propaganda is most effective when it's not recognized as propaganda. Precisely. Um, so what are the origins of the current infrastructure? When did it start and how did it transform? So the deep roots of it go back to the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, the conservative movement, which was just really getting started in its modern form in that era, had at the heart of it all of these media enterprises, so newsletters like Human Events, news magazines like National Review, radio programs like the Mannion Forum, they weren't very big. They weren't making any money. 
but they were central to the organizational and branding work of early conservatism. And so that's kind of one starting point is this group of connected media outlets that were teaching conservatives first about this idea of liberal media bias and second about this idea that part of being a conservative is to consume these conservative news outlets. I do want to say that there is another major turning point if we're talking about the origins of this infrastructure, and that's in the 1980s and 1990s. It's when Rush Limbaugh and Fox News hit the scene. And even though they're building on this much earlier work, they did something that those earlier people didn't. And that is they found this way to make political news and political propaganda entertaining. So it was entertainment first, which made it very profitable, which introduced this whole other set of incentives into conservative media. And so I think that's a, a really important turning point in this story for what we recognize now as conservative media. And how telling that that happened during the reign of the great communicator, Ronald Reagan, who honed his political speeching from doing speeches for General Electric through the country. And, and in that sense, the Reagan period was also very important in terms of deregulation, right? Absolutely. So Reagan was a radio guy, as many people might know. He spent his time between being governor of California and president of the United States doing these radio broadcasts. And one of the things that he knew from that experience was conservative broadcasters hated this thing called the Fairness Doctrine which required fair and equal coverage of controversial issues where you showed both sides. You couldn't have a radio station that was just presenting the conservative side of an issue. So one of the big projects he set out on when he first became president was to create a federal communications commission that would get rid of the Fairness Doctrine. It took them a very long time. It wasn't until the end of his second term that they were able to finally get rid of it. There were still some attempts to put it back into place over the next several years, but that regulatory shift really mattered, as well as the Telecommunications Act that would happen in the 1990s under a different president, but that was also part of the deregulation of media that allowed conservative media to flourish. Now, a lot of discussions about right-wing politics focus on the question whether, in essence, it is a grassroots movement coming from the bottom up and driven by authentic demand, or whether it's an astroturf movement, which is top down and by and large is driven by the money and the interest of some rich elites. This was a major discussion in the Tea Party where most of the conservatives argues this is bottom up and many of the liberals said, no, this is just the Koch brothers like financing it. The same we have to a certain extent with right-wing media, perhaps a little bit more outside of the US, but in Britain and Australia, where Rupert Murdoch is seen as this kind of like evil mastermind who, who has just created this evil empire, really, of right-wing media. Is the US conservative media grassroots or astroturf? So this is a great question, and it's... it's Different in the U.S. than it is in Australia and other countries, as you pointed out. But in the U.S., I mean, conservative media are both and neither, which is to say, like, they're an institution that mediates between the grassroots and the elites and are influenced by both of them. And a really great example of this is something that happened in 2013 when Senator Marco Rubio was going around to Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes and Rush Limbaugh and saying to them, look, I'm about to push through this immigration reform bill. I need you all to hold fire and help me out here and support this bill so we can get it passed and get this issue off the table. And so if you were watching in early 2013, you would see Sean Hannity being like, oh yeah, this immigration reform bill is amazing. It's not amnesty. We should all support it. 
And he and Rush Limbaugh and everybody else got a huge backlash from their audiences who were like, absolutely not. And on a dime, you just see Hannity switching to like, amnesty, you have to oppose this bill. And I think that gives you a really good sense of both how elites work to pressure what's put out on conservative media and how grassroots and the base push back against that. And oftentimes, conservative media outlets are kind of wedged between the two. And talking about the issue of immigration, we now have Tucker Carlson, which fits completely this bill of right-wing media pushing right-wing issues. But I'm also always thinking about Lou Dobbs. And Lou Dobbs started on CNN, doing, to a certain extent, Fox News on CNN. Are the boundaries that fluid, or is he an exception? The boundaries are that fluid. And this is something I'm looking at in my next book because it's so fascinating. I mean, we get so focused on conservative-only outlets that we miss the way that conservatives are sort of incubated and introduced to much larger audiences on non-conservative outlets. So let's take Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson gets his start on CNN and MSNBC. It's MSNBC that for 10 years in the early 2000s is employing Pat Buchanan. People like Laura Ingram and Ann Coulter become national figures on the talk show Politically Incorrect. And so it's important for us to expand our understanding of political media in order to understand the way these conservative figures come up, because it's often not through conservative media. Glenn Beck was on CNN for a really long time before he went over to Fox News. So it's, it's a much bigger, broader, messier picture. Glenn Beck is perhaps also an example of the limited appeal of the person and how important the source is, right? Because he made his own movement, 912. And people were walking around in t-shirts like Glenn Beck, right-wing extremist. And everyone was like, oh, Glenn Beck made the Tea Party. And then Glenn Beck left Fox News, started the blaze and kind of disappeared. We talk about right-wing politicians very often as very charismatic But is it them or is it the outlet? It's a combination of the two. And Glenn Beck is a really interesting story because he was somebody who thought, and I think he thought incorrectly, that he could strike out on his own. And this is part of the story of just new media in general. And so Glenn Beck creates The Blaze. He already has his own radio program. So he has lots of different branding out there and really wanted to set up this entire media empire, which at the moment is tottering. He had to fire quite a number of people recently, which suggests that it's not that economically viable. But Beck is also interesting because at kind of the height of the Tea Party, he makes a move to proselytize. And he starts to lean more into the religious aspect and away from some of the political aspects of his message. And I think that that was him trying to pivot towards the things he was more interested in. But that's not what the Tea Party wanted, right? They wanted politics. And so I think part of the story there, too, is, again, the limits of getting too out of sync with your base, because they just didn't want to go where he wanted to go. Right. And so the Murdoch media are a global phenomenon. In what way is the U.S. conservative media influenced by media in other countries? And in what way do they influence media in other countries? There has been a global component of conservative media right from the start. So I mentioned Clarence Mannion earlier, and he was somebody who in the 1960s was having the leaders of Rhodesia and South Africa on his program in order right. to give support to their governments and they could use you know, these recordings back in their home countries. 
But as far as influencing, I mean, Murdoch is obviously a big part of this. There are certainly outlets with global components. So Breitbart had spinoffs like Breitbart EU, Breitbart UK. And then there are the ways that U.S. media influences what's happening in other countries. So for instance, in Australia, the talkback radio phenomenon was kind of copy of what the U.S. was doing. And you can see how it doesn't always work as well in different environments. I mean, there is a a talkback part of Australian radio with Alan Jones and others, but it's not native and it's never really been that influential. So I think that there are real limits to the global appeal of some of these approaches. Yeah, and I think you saw the same with like Breitbart UK, Breitbart and Ben in general never caught on. And at the same time, in my native country, the Netherlands, we have this thing called Geen Stel, No Style, which is kind of a Breitbartish thing, but predates that kind of thing. And so that actually survives because, as you said, I mean, that's native, so to say it. And, but it's also, to a certain extent, bottom up. It comes out of however small, but the local right wing culture. And those right-wing cultures are are talking to one another, right? Like there are international connections and networks undergirding all of this. So in your best case scenario, I think you have the intellectual and organizational conversations happening, but that the media themselves are sort of genuine expressions of the media cultures and media regulatory environments of various countries. Right. But the personalities don't seem to travel that well. So, for example, I don't think many people in Europe will know Ben Shapiro, will know even Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, right? Because within social media, it is more the written content and kind of the memes that Mm -hmm. travel very far. But of course, language does play a role, right? And so there's a large portion of particularly, I mean, we call it conservative, but a sizable part of these people are far right. Their electorate or their base wants to have it in their own language and needs to have it in their own language. And so I guess it's more the Anglosphere. Now, of course, we have to talk about Donald Trump. In what way has the rise of Donald Trump changed the character, but also the power relations within the conservative media? It's radically transformed it. And it's so interesting. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about Trump TV as Donald Trump's next act. And back in 2016, when people thought he was going to lose the election, I was being commissioned to write this very long piece about Trump TV. What I was struck by was how different the conservative media landscape looked back then. I mean, just take Fox News. You have the elevation of Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram. You lose people like Megyn Kelly and George Will and Greta Van Susteren. And it becomes just much, much Trumpier. There are people who had conservative talk radio shows that were canceled because they were still anti-Trump. And so the Trumpification of conservative media, it has an effect not just on, on tone and personnel and personality, but it also means that sort of the content has changed. You have a much stronger own-the-libs vibe to conservative media, and it is much less clustered around a set of policy preferences that looked more Reagan-esque, right? Like deregulation and lower taxes and no deficit, blah, blah, blah. Like that stuff got pushed to the wayside. So what's holding that coalition together? It's making fun of AOC or making a liberal cry. Like that's the ethos that ties together this diverse coalition now. I think that's a very good point. In 2014-15, it was still very defensive. It was about we, the poor victims. I guess that's, in a large extent, why Trump was so successful, even with people who abhor some of his ideas and perhaps also his personality. But he just took the fight 
to the lips, like to the liberals, and unabashedly and unashamedly did that. And that got this kind of massive movement, which you also see, of course, in people like Ben Shapiro, but also in Turning Point USA. And as you said, the people who are now the most popular on Fox are the people who attack, right, rather Mm -hmm. than defend. So how does that work after you have lost an election? I mean, isn't that a great question? (laughs) I think that we're going to see. And part of it is what you are seeing is a return to a victimization narrative, but now it's a victimization narrative that is suffused with a stab in the back mythology. And that makes it incredibly dangerous. It is a return to victimization, but it is also that something has been stolen from you. And I can point to exactly what that thing is. And I'm the one who it was stolen from in the terms of Donald Trump. So the power of Donald Trump, both on the conservative movement and conservative media going forward, it could go in a very dangerous direction. It is in a very dangerous direction. I mean, we're talking here today at a point in time when Donald Trump and most members of the Republican Party have refused to acknowledge that Joe Biden won the election. And if you go on conservative talk radio these days, it is gospel truth that this election was stolen with all sorts of rumors and conspiracies being given real oxygen. You may not see all of that on Fox News, although a lot of it is there. But if you are immersed in the the media world that most conservatives are immersed in, it is a, a pretty dark and potentially really dangerous place right now. Yeah, I got an email from one of my fans, let's say, conservative, who keeps me up to date on what real America thinks. And it was all full of how the election was stolen. But there is a difference in terms of the betrayal with, for example, the discourse in the right-wing movement as well as media during the Tea Party, right? Then it was the rhinos. And at this point in time, it seems that the Republican Party has come together much more. At the moment, it's not infighting. It's very much targeted at, I assume, the Democratic parties and whatever, the cosmopolitan elite and obviously George Soros. It's all of those things. And then also anyone who dares get out of line. And this gets us into the Fox News story right now, which is there are a few people on Fox News who are recognizing that the network called the election for Joe Biden, who push back against some of the crazier conspiracy theories. And those people are also targets of just like deep animus from the right at this moment. And that has the very effect that you're talking about, right? It it holds everyone else together because no one wants to be out there alone because they're going to be the rhino that gets shot and they don't want to be that person. And so everyone's kind of sticking together. And so I'm not one of the people who believes that there is a coup going on. And so I think inevitably this is going to move forward. I don't think Trump will ever say the words that he has lost, that he will pretty much just not oppose it anymore. And of course, Republicans move forward. Someone like Mitch McConnell will even be reasonably happy that he no longer has to work for Trump. But what will that do to the conservative media It can't just go back to the pre-Trump period. And at the same time, do you think it will stay the same without Trump in the White House? You could see it going back in a way to a Tea Party era conservative media. Then conservative media was rife with conspiracy theories about birtherism. Mm -hmm. It was very focused on both Democrats and rhinos as the big enemies, and that those same sort of concerns about who's Trumpiest is going to be an issue when we get to primaries in 2022. 
the question is, does a network like Fox News change in any appreciable way in a post-Trump era? And it's hard to see them doing that because the lineup that they came up with during the Trump era has been incredibly popular and I think continues to be incredibly popular. I mean, I think that there are some changes on the horizon. It'll be interesting to see if any of these upstart networks manage to create a space for themselves, if there's enough of a change in viewership habits and the economics of television in order to make it viable to have more than one conservative television network. Rush Limbaugh obviously is quite ill, and he's been a presence in conservative media for more than three decades. What does it look like when he's no longer there? What does it look like when the Ben Shapiro's of the world begin to come of age and he has more copycats or more people in his area doing podcasts and stuff for a younger generation? I don't think we know yet. Trump and the Trump family will continue to be a huge factor in Republican politics and conservative media. And so part of the answer is going to depend on where they land and what they brand. And in that sense, would you agree that it is particularly Donald Trump Jr. that we are going to expect within this world? Because Eric Trump has a relatively low profile within broader conservative slash far right movement. Ivanka has always tried to keep a different type of profile. And I honestly can't see Donald Trump spent most of his time just being on radio shows. Do you think Donald Trump Jr. is going to do this? And is he going to do it within the current structure? Or is there going to be that Trump TV after all? Donald Trump himself doesn't have the capital to start a new television network. He doesn't have the discipline to do a nightly television show or a right. daily radio show. So I think that he is not going to have his own program. But Donald Trump Jr. is absolutely a creature of the modern conservative media environment. And you could imagine him having a podcast like Ben Shapiro. You could imagine him having his own television show on any one of these upstart networks. I don't think Fox News is going to touch him, but you could absolutely see him on Newsmax or a rebranded Trump TV. And he's going to continue to be presence on Twitter and in the sort of meme world of not just conservatism, but I think you're exactly right, the far right, which is something that he plays around with quite a lot. And the borders between the far right and the conservative movement are quite porous, if still standing at all. So I think Donald Trump Jr. is very much going to be in that place. On that issue, which is something that I've worked on a lot, and which is the normalization of the far right, Clearly under Trump, these boundaries have by and large disappeared. Not to say that every individual Republican or conservative outlet is far right, but they have all pretty much supported Trump and the key points of his agenda. Do you see that change in the coming years or might that take a longer time? So I think that we're going to continue to see the smooshing together the blending of the far right and the conservative movement. I mean, everything that we've seen this election, people from QAnon and the far right running for Congress, some of them even winning. I don't know. It seems like these ideas just are bleeding together more and more. Certainly there has been some rebranding on the far right as certain groups become sort of persona non grata, they get reinvented as something else. And there's certainly a difference still between, say, the Groypers and Nick Fuentes and like this overtly anti-Semitic sort of rebranding of the alt-right and conservative media. But, you know, somebody like Michelle Malkin sits at the intersection of these worlds and she has not exactly been read out of the rest of the conservative movement. So there are plenty of pathways between those two worlds, so much so that you could imagine a future where they are one blended world. Absolutely. 
So finally, what is the most important misperception about the conservative media in the U.S.? I think that there's still this misconception out there that people who consume conservative media are simply sponges who <laughs> soak up whatever it is they hear and then you just kind of wring them out and they just like spit it all back out in the exact same form. From my experience, conservative media consumers are actually pretty savvy. Like there's stuff that they hear that they reject and they don't go along with. There's stuff they hear that they are really attracted to. I mean, there's still radicalization and things that are going on, but this idea of conservatives who consume this media as simply automatons or people who are brainwashed, I don't think actually fits the lived experience of most people who consume this media. And we have to give them both more credit and more culpability for their politics when we talk about the work that this media does. I think this is such a long-standing idea about how populist or the far right seduce gullible people, which first of all takes away the agency of these people. And second of all, it's a very self-defeating position from liberals, right? Because what can you do like, if, right. if they're so powerful? And you get that then also, like, well, you can't debate them or we have to sound like them. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to know more about Nicole Hammer, you can follow her on Twitter at, at @pastpunditry, and her podcasts are Past Present and A12. And if you want to know more about conservative media in the US, you should really read her book, Messengers of the Right conservative media and the transformation of u.s politics which was published by the university of pennsylvania press in 2016 thank you for listening to radical the music is from the gonads with the classic song Karl marx supported millwall i want to thank jack fernandez for helping me with the editing and i'm your host kas mudder if you like the episode please subscribe to radical on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate us till the next time the economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I'm seeing down the dunker, playing with his beard. No wonder